Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chasley in New York. Welcome to First Move, and we begin with U.S. President Joe Biden's trip to the Middle East. Becky Anderson joins us now from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Becky, great to have you with us, and a busy day already for President Biden. It most certainly has. President Biden, thank you, Julia. Emphasizing deepening ties between the U.S. and Israel on this critical tour of the Middle East and signing a joint declaration with Prime Minister Yair Lapid to expand security ties and embrace Israel's integration into this wider region. That has become a major theme of the president's four-day visit. Today's landmark commitment also includes a promise to never allow Iran to acquire nuclear weapons. Today, you and I also discussed America's commitment to ensuring Iran never obtains a nuclear weapon. This is a vital security interest to both Israel and the United States, and I would add, for the rest of the world as well. Well, that's President Biden with more. Harris Gold is in Jerusalem for us. And both of us listening in to uh, that press conference with President Biden, of course, and Israel's new leader, Yair Lapid. Um, Iran very much in focus, Haras. Um, and the idea of the building of a regional alliance, which includes Israel, Israel and its Arab neighbors, to ensure that Iran doesn't have this destabilizing force going forward. What did you make of what you heard today? Yeah, Israel has long wanted this sort of regional alliance. This is something we heard former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett talking about during his visit to the United States last year. Uh, but for them, they would like to have this sort of regional alliance with like-minded countries, which in their dreams will also include Saudi Arabia, uh, to work together to help counter uh, Iranian threats using some of these missile defense systems that President Biden toured yesterday, like the Iron Dome and this new laser iron beam program. But there is still exist a different of opinion between President Biden and Prime Minister Yair Lapid and how best to counter a potential nuclear Iran. This is sort of the main moment, you could call it, of contention during this press conference where President Biden repeated that he thinks the best path forward to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon is diplomacy. And that is what he wants. He also said when he was asked about whether there is a deadline, when he will say to the Iranians, OK, that's it. You, it's been too much time. Diplomacy is off the table we're done. He didn't give a specific deadline, but he did say that it won't be forever. Prime Minister Yair Lapid pushed back and said very clearly on stage that diplomacy will not work, that words itself will not work. He said the only way that you can prevent a nuclear Iran is through a credible military threat on the table. Now, there is some Israel, there are some reassurances for the Israelis in this Jerusalem declaration that they signed. There was an American commitment that Iran will never obtain a nuclear weapon, a recognition that Israel will always be able to defend itself by itself and that the Americans will also always help Israel have a quality 
qualitative military edge. And also importantly, there was an interview aired last night on Israeli Channel 12 that President Biden conducted with them, where he was asked point blank, will the Americans ever be willing to use force against the Iranians? And he did. And President Biden did say yes. He said, as a last resort, we will be willing to use force against the Iranians. The Israelis will be happy to hear that, but they still want to push the Americans away from a return to the nuclear deal that they just think will not do enough to stop a nuclear Iran, and especially will only, they fear, open up the doors to more Iranian threats in the region, things like supporting Hezbollah, things like supporting missiles and armed drones that they're very concerned about, as well as their new regional allies like the UAE and Bahrain. Sure. And we know those nuclear talks are um, stalled at present. The question is, does Washington have a plan B, of course, if diplomacy uh, fails? So perhaps the uh, president going further than he has on, on putting a military option on the table uh, today. Look, this trip is mostly focused on mending ties with Saudi Arabia. Let's be quite frank about this. Uh, promoting Israel's further integration, as you have rightly pointed out, in this region, um, pushing the Abraham Accords uh, one step further. Uh, the Israelis would like uh, normalization with the Saudis. I don't think anybody uh, assumes for that to happen during this uh, Biden trip. But it's also about consolidating the sort of regional alliance, the de-escalation in the region and these regional alliances for, for the purposes of both economics and security. And we've seen a lot of that when you live in this region. We've seen the coming together of these uh, regional assets. What we know we are likely to get very little, little of on this trip mm. is much for the Palestinians, or at least that is their frustration. I think one commentator uh, pointed out that the inclusion of Mahmoud Abbas on Biden's agenda is nothing more than a courtesy call. Your assessment. That is very much what it feels like. It definitely feels like the Palestinian issue is pushed to the side, that the focus is on Iran, it's on Saudi Arabia, and that there is a very clear recognition by the Americans that there's not going to be major steps made on any sort of major peace process between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And President Biden said as much on his remarks at the tarmac uh, yesterday. He said as much as he believes in the two-state solution, he recognizes that it might not be happening in the near future. And there's quite a bit of disappointment from Palestinians, from the senior officials to the everyday Palestinian in what they believe are unfulfilled promises from President Biden. And I'm sure Palestinians listening to the press conference in the last few hours would have been a little bit disappointed also to hear about just the fact that they signed what they called the Jerusalem Declaration. President Biden was explicitly asked about whether his visit tomorrow to East Jerusalem, to a hospital there, is some sort of recognition to Palestinian claims that they want East Jerusalem to be the capital of a future state of Palestine, whether it's some sort of pulling back of the Trump administration recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And he said simply no. And there just doesn't seem to be any major moves going to be made towards the Palestinians other than just some small confidence building measures. The uh, Americans announcing more funding for the Palestinians, more funding for the hospital networks, but not much else. And the feeling that you're really getting from the Palestinians is one of disappointment and of pessimism. Five years ago, on his last visit to the White House, the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas made a rare venture into English. Now, Mr. President, with you, we have hope. Several months later, that hope proved to have been terribly misplaced. It is time to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. 
Under Donald Trump, U.S. policy tilted heavily towards Israel. The Palestinian political office in Washington was closed. The American consulate in Jerusalem, which symbolized U.S.-Palestinian relations, also closed. And almost all economic aid to the Palestinians was switched off. So when Joe Biden won the election, there was great relief among many in the Palestinian community. But that relief has little to show in terms of action. The Biden administration highlights renewed financing. About half a billion dollars, mostly on schools, hospitals, and other humanitarian aid projects. Further $100 million is set to be announced on this trip, including some money for Palestinian hospitals in East Jerusalem. But politically, the White House seems unwilling to pressure Israel over continued expansion of West Bank settlements and weak in the face of Israel's resistance over plans to reopen the consulate in Jerusalem. Hussein Sheikh is one of Abbas's closest aides. The U.S. administration has been talking with us about these issues for more than a year, but nothing has been achieved. Even so, we continue to hope this visit will produce serious outcomes, that it provides hope and a political horizon. Biden's visit to the West Bank will take him not to Ramallah, the headquarters of the Palestinian Authority, but to Bethlehem, just a few miles south of Jerusalem, where the president will find it hard to avoid stark reminders of the conflict. One issue that will likely be staring President Biden right in the face, the killing of Shireen Abu Akleh. This giant mural of the Al Jazeera journalist is right on the road you take as you enter Bethlehem. For many here, the U.S. response to the death of the Palestinian-American reporter, shot dead while covering an Israeli military operation, has been inadequate and indicative, they believe, of the U.S.'s unwillingness to force Israel to get serious about peace and bringing an end to occupation. Putting an end to this injustice, putting an end to this impunity is important because it sheds light, it continues to shed light on the greater picture of what Palestinians continue to endure on a daily basis. From the Palestinian perspective, the overwhelming feeling around the president's visit is one of pessimism. And Becky, President Biden did say that he believes uh, normalizing relations with Arab countries, especially these steps towards possible normalization with Saudi Arabia, will help the Palestinians. But when you talk to the everyday Palestinian, I spoke to one tour guide and he said the only benefit that he think will come out of President Biden's visit to this region and to Saudi Arabia is the fact that the roads in Bethlehem will be repaved for President Biden's motorcade. Becky. <laughs> that is gold. Thank you. So President Biden currently in Israel. He'll go on to the West Bank, back to Israel from where he will fly direct here to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia on Friday. And that is a first for a U.S. president, whether he can achieve anything more substantive as far as progress is concerned for Israel in normalizing relations with the kingdom is not clear at this point. Lots to digest. Uh, we will be back shortly. First, though, let's get you the rest of today's news with Julia. Thanks, Becky. And to Sri Lanka now, where the nation's president has now landed in Singapore after initially fleeing to the Maldives. This video shows the plane believed to be carrying him at an airport in Singapore. He had pledged to step down, but has yet to officially submit his resignation letter. Meanwhile, Colombo, calmer today as troops patrol the streets of the capital city. Kung La joins us now. It's starting to feel a little bit like a, the movie Catch Me If You Can. So we can talk about how long the president intends to perhaps to stay in Singapore. But the 
constitutionally, this letter, this resignation letter is vitally important because without it, the country can't move on and select an interim fresh government. So this is this is what we need to be talking about specifically, I think. Right. It is in the constitution of the Sri Lankan government that in order for the resignation of the president to be official, the speaker of the parliament has to have that letter in hand. But of course, there is no letter. And the president is not in the country. Uh, first, he disappeared into the Maldives. And now uh, the, Shri, uh, the Singaporean government has allowed him to enter the country as a private visitor. So is he going to stay there? Is he going to continue on? All we know is that he has absolutely fled the country. Now, with him gone, what he has done has uh, appointed a prime minister. But the problem with that prime minister from the protester viewpoint is that he is seen as simply an extension of the president's government. So that has left the country in a state of limbo and from the people who have been so angry that they have taken over the presidential palace as well as the prime minister's residence, it has really not helped cool things down. So what is happening as far as some of that simmering anger is, there is just a lot of questions on what happens next, especially with the president still on the run. Yes, and that interim president has now given the armed forces more powers of arrest, permission to use force, if necessary, they've also uh, imposed a curfew, I believe, from noon Thursday until 5 a.m. Friday. And that does seem to have lessened some of the protests that we've seen. What can you tell us on that front? Well, what we've heard from the protesters, at least through the lawyer, Julia, is that what they want to do is to leave two of the three offices that they have occupied. They will remain in the prime minister's office. But as far as the presidential palace and the prime minister's residence, they're going to walk away from those places. Um, so there is this uh, effort, at least on the ground, from the people's protesters to turn the volume down. And so far, what we've seen on the ground, what we're hearing from reports on the ground, is that there is just this anticipation, this concern, but no direct violence or uh, pushing forward of the protesters into more of the governmental space. Parliament is scheduled to meet, but now it appears that they're going to be holding off on meeting as well. So, again, everyone holding their breath. So far today, we have not seen what we have seen, the chaotic scenes of protesters pushing into uh, governmental offices that we had over the last few days. Julia? Yes, and far more targeted now, now directed towards the remaining man, which is the prime minister slash interim president um, and a rejection of his rule too. Kung La, great to have you with us. Thank you. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Rescue workers are searching for survivors following a deadly airstrike in central Ukraine. Kiev says 20 people were killed, including three children, when Russian missiles slammed into buildings located in the heart of Vinnytsia. Ukraine says the attack was carried out with Kalibu cruise missiles launched from submarines stationed in the Black Sea. WNBA star Brittany Griner is back in court near Moscow this hour after pleading guilty last week to drug smuggling. In today's hearing, Griner is expected to be questioned and her lawyers are expected to ask for leniency. We don't know if there will be a verdict today. If convicted, she could be sentenced to up to 10 years in prison. 
And in the United Kingdom, American actor Kevin Spacey has pleaded not guilty to sexually abusing three men. He faces four charges of sexual assault and one of causing sexual activity without consent, which carries a maximum sentence of life in prison. The Oscar winner has previously denied all allegations. His trial is set to start next year. Okay, coming up here on First Move, big revisions, big problems. The EU Commissioner for the Economy joins us to discuss their latest forecasts, plus Emmageddon. Yes, it's a thing and it's all Heathrow's fault, at least according to the Emirates. It seems accusations and blame are the only things flying there at this moment. We'll discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And as we were just discussing, Sri Lanka's president now landing in Singapore after initially fleeing to the Maldives. The crisis, though, in the country signals the fall of one of the country's most powerful political families. CNN's Vedic Sood looks at the rise and the fall of the Rajapaska dynasty. This was the moment that sank Sri Lanka's Rajapaksa dynasty. On Saturday, protesters stormed the abandoned presidential residence of Gotabaya Rajapaksa, demanding he resign. Days later, the president fled the country just before he was due to formally resign, bringing an end to his three-year presidency. Also an end to more than a decade of his family's dominance of Sri Lankan politics. Gotabaya Rajapaksa's father was a member of parliament from 1947 to 1965. But it was his older brother, Mahinda Rajapaksa, who brought the family to national prominence, working his way up the political ranks for decades until becoming prime minister in 2004 and president in 2005. Mahinda Rajapaksa appointed his brother Gotabaya as defence secretary and they led a brutal war against the Tamil Tiger Separatist Group, ending a 25-year insurgency in 2009. Mahinda Rajapaksa lost the 2015 presidential election, but the brothers came back to power in 2019, this time Gotabaya as president. Five family members were appointed to key government positions. Mahinda Rajapaksa became prime minister. But in the years since, the family was accused of mismanaging the economy, borrowing too much spending on vanity projects and cutting taxes too steeply. Then they were hit by the coronavirus pandemic, devastating tourism and drying up revenue. And this year, skyrocketing fuel costs have pushed the public to the brink. After weeks of protests, Gotabaya Rajapaksa urged several family members to resign from the cabinet. Mahinda resigned as prime minister in May. And now, with Gotabaya out, the Rajapaksa dominance appears to have ended. Vedika Sood, CNN. Okay, let me give you a look at what we're seeing across financial markets. It's inflation frustration and its monetary policy and profit implications weighing on global investor sentiment once again. The latest U.S. producer prices data. We're talking about the price of goods leaving factories in the United States. That rose at an 11.3% year-over-year rate last month and a more than 1% jump month over month. The translation, it's really hot. Both data points, in fact, hotter than expected. And of course, today's report follows Wednesday's consumer price 
calamity with CPI rising more than 9% year over year in June. Wall Street is now beginning to consider the previously unthinkable, I think, the possibility that the Federal Reserve might have to raise interest rates by a full percentage point later this month and perhaps another three quarters of a percent in the month of September too. I mean, this is going to represent a much more aggressive pace of tightening than had been expected even just a few days ago. A necessary move perhaps, but also a step that would only increase the chances of recession and restrict the Federal Reserve's ability to calibrate the impact of the policy that they're applying. Giant US bank JP Morgan in the meantime bracing for trouble. Shares set to fall some three and a half percent after missing on their second quarter revenues and profits. CEO Jamie Dimon and co engaging in all sorts of defensive maneuvers like suspending stock buybacks and raising loan reserves to protect against future bad debts and delinquencies. And another banking bigwig, Morgan Stanley, missing on both the top and bottom line in their earnings too. All of this contributing to a softer picture. As you can see there, pre-market US stocks set for early session losses with the S&P 500 set to pull fall for the fifth straight session. And as you can see in the line below Europe in the red too, the Zetradax over in Germany, the underperformer down some one and a half percent in the session. And uh, speaking of hot, there's no break in sight from sweltering heat waves scorching parts of Western Europe. Temperatures reaching 45 degrees Celsius in parts of Portugal and Spain Wednesday. But this weekend, the heat wave is expected to reach Britain and possibly bring the highest temperatures ever recorded. As the heat grips the continent, so do massive wildfires. CNN's Jennifer Gray reports. Plumes of smoke billowing into the sky. Flames scorching hundreds of hectares of land. Emergency crews battling to bring the blazes under control. In Portugal, France and Spain, dozens of wildfires are sweeping the region amid a blistering heat wave threatening residents and tourists. There are no longer residents in my town, maybe two or three people, but no one is left. When I saw the fires by the houses and we had to evacuate people who didn't want to leave their homes, that's alarming. Everyone has dogs, cats, chickens. They wanted to save everything, but they had to move quickly. In southwestern France, local officials say thousands have been evacuated. Many now in temporary shelters as they escape the raging wildfires. We see it on TV and we tell ourselves it'll never happen to us. And then, inevitably, when it does happen, it's upsetting, especially the people shouting. The smell of smoke and all that, it's scary. I didn't think it would be so hard. And with the heat and fatigue, I'm just glad we're here now. Hundreds in western Spain and central Portugal have also been evacuated as firefighters struggle to control a series of wildfires there. I've been here for 50 years and I can't remember something like this ever happening before because it's everywhere. It's burning in all directions. I just can't remember anything like this. Portuguese officials tell CNN that the country is better prepared to combat the ongoing fires than in previous years after reforms implemented since devastating wildfires killed dozens in 2017. But the current wildfires do pose a grave challenge. The convergence of factors that we are uh, having this week in Portugal, in Spain, and the whole of the Mediterranean, with uh, after very little rainfall, very high temperatures, not just of the air, but of the the ground, uh, very low uh, humidity, wind, from the southwest, this convergence of factors is extremely worrying. 
As fires tear through the region, millions across Western Europe are sweltering in an extended record-breaking heat wave, with the highest level of heat alerts issued in several areas. But those scorching temperatures and devastating fires that accompany them may soon become the new norm. According to a February report from the United Nations, the number of extreme wildfires is expected to go up by as much as 30 percent within the next three decades as the climate crisis triggers searing heat and droughts. Fires blazing across Western Europe, it appears, the latest impact of human-caused climate change in an increasingly warming world. Jennifer Gray, CNN. Okay, coming up on First Move, John Kirby, the coordinator for strategic communications at America's National Security Council, will join Becky to discuss Biden's controversial trip through the Middle East. That's next. Stay with CNN. Welcome back. I'm Becky Anderson, joining you from Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, where President Joe Biden will land in the next 24 hours. Right now, he's in Jerusalem telling his hosts that the U.S. stands by its ironclad commitment to Israel. The two countries jointly declaring they will never allow Iran to acquire nuclear weapons. Biden saying the move is vital to the security of Israel, the U.S. and the entire world, he said. On the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, Biden says his position is already quite clear when asked if he'd bring up the topic to Saudi leaders. He shied away from a yes or no answer, a turnaround from his campaign comments on the killing to which Saudi's uh, crown prince is linked. Well, as Biden tours Israel, controversy and discomfort in some quarters over his impending visit here to Saudi Arabia. When Joe Biden arrives in Saudi Arabia on Friday, don't expect to see scenes like this. It was then President Donald Trump's first foreign trip back in 2017, underscoring the importance he placed on America's relationship with the kingdom. It's a great honor to have the crown prince. But his successor chose to signal a different approach. I would make it very clear, we were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. Since taking office, Biden has avoided directly engaging with the kingdom's de facto ruler, Mohammed bin Salman, also known as MBS, over human rights violations. MBS has denied he ordered the killing of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018, but has said he bears responsibility. But geopolitical challenges may have forced President Biden to adopt a more conciliatory approach than candidate Biden promised. He'll fly into the Red Sea city of Jeddah after wrapping up a visit to Israel, a flight that has never before been taken by a US president and a clear example of the improving ties between Israel and Arab states, first initiated by the Trump administration and the Abraham Accords. Remain seated for the signing of the documents. Behind me is where Joe Biden will meet with leaders from the GCC plus Egypt, Jordan and Iraq in the coming days. He's keen to provide support for further normalization efforts with Israel and provide a unified regional front against Iran as talks to revive the nuclear deal continue to stall. Another key priority, energy security. 
Russia's invasion of Ukraine earlier this year and subsequent Western sanctions on Moscow have left the world short on supplies. And that means Washington needs Saudi Arabia and other Gulf allies to increase oil production to help bring down prices at the pump and curb inflation at home. While the White House has confirmed Biden's upcoming meeting with Saudi officials will include MBS, it also announced new COVID measures, reducing presidential touch, raising questions about whether the administration is trying to avoid the optics of a Biden-MBS handshake. Well, optics aside, President Biden's visit here to Saudi Arabia will be key in resetting Washington's relationship with its Middle Eastern partners, sceptical of America's commitment to them and may bring about a regional security arrangement in the coming months. So while it's unlikely Biden will be received like Trump was, the stakes couldn't be higher for a US president whose domestic agenda hinges on the success he finds abroad. Well, in Israel earlier, Mr. Biden made one commitment clear, saying the US will not allow Iran to acquire nuclear weapons. Israel's Prime Minister Lapid told Biden that the US's threat must be credible and requires force, not words. John Kirby is coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council. He joins me from Jerusalem, where Joe Biden just announced the joint security declaration. It's good to have you, John. In the last couple of hours, Israel's prime minister had this to say when speaking about Iran. Take a listen. Words will not stop them, Mr. President. Diplomacy will not stop them. The only thing that will stop Iran is knowing that if they continue to develop their nuclear program, the free world will use force. President Biden said he still prefers diplomacy, but will use military action as a last resort. John Kirby, is President Biden going to put a credible military threat on the table as the Israeli prime minister is calling for? President Biden has been very, very clear uh, that uh, he's not going to take any option off the table with respect to staying true to our commitment uh, that Iran cannot have uh, a nuclear weapons capability. But he also was very honest, and you heard that today, Becky, that he still believes diplomacy is the best path forward to achieve that outcome. Now, look, the Iran deal negotiations are pretty well complete. There's a deal now on the table. And the president, and you heard him say this today, believes that the onus is on Iran now uh, to take that deal, to accept that deal, so that we can move past where we are right now. Well, some will say that without a return to the JCPOA that limits Iran's nuclear program, Tehran will reach the threshold of nuclear weapon capability. Does that concern you? And are the Israelis asking you to prevent Iran from reaching that threshold? We are obviously concerned about uh, increasing uh, nuclear material uh, being developed uh, inside uh, Iran. I mean, it's no secret uh, that they are closer now 
than they were when our administration took office because the previous administration pulled out of the deal um, and lifted those constraints. It got rid of those rigid inspection uh, regimes that were in place. So obviously we're concerned about the, this continued uh, development uh, by, by Iran of, of that fissile material. And that's why, again, we still believe that the best outcome is Iranian compliance with the JCPOA uh, so that we can prevent them from getting uh, a nuclear weapon capability. But if not, does that beg a preemptive strike? I, I won't speculate about uh, military operations uh, one way or the other. The president has made it clear, Becky, uh, that he's not going to take any option off the table. But the preferred option still remains, uh, in the president's view, uh, a diplomatic path. And he still believes that there's time and space for that. But you heard him say today, we're not going to wait forever. There's a deal on the table. We want Iran, Iran to accept that deal uh, so that we can make the region safer for everybody. What are we talking about here? Are we weeks, months away at this point? No, I won't speculate about a, uh, you know, a timeline. I think the president was very clear uh, mm. you know, that we're not going to wait uh, forever. Uh, the, the, again, I want to say it again, and I, I know I, I sound like a broken record here, but there is a deal, um, and we, we need Iran to accept that deal. Uh, there has been a lot of hard work done by diplomats, not just American diplomats, but, but from our, our European colleagues as well, to get to this point. Um, so there's still a chance. Uh, but obviously, as you heard the president say, we're not going to wait forever. Ahead of this trip, the White House also messaged about Iran supplying drones to Russia. Is it yeah. your assessment that Iran has drone building capacity and technology to be a significant player in this arena? Well, we know they have the ability to build, to manufacture and to field uh, their own drones. And they have used some of that uh, technology against our interests and our troops uh, in places like Iraq uh, and in Syria. So clearly they have the domestic production capability. Uh, I don't know the parameters of, of, of the deal that Mr. Putin has struck, so I, I couldn't speak with specificity about how well Iran will be able to step up uh, to this requirement. But I think there are two things uh, that, are, that are obvious here. Uh, Iran is also, is also an isolated uh, nation, and so is, is Russia. So Russia turning to Iran for help, I think, uh, speaks volumes of the degree to which both nations, uh, for their actions in two different areas of the world, um, have been inc increasingly isolated by the international community. And number two, uh, that it's indicative of Mr. Putin's uh, problems in terms of replenishing his own defense needs uh, to prosecute this war in Ukraine. Uh, we know that the sanctions are biting. We know the export controls are, are biting. We know that his ability to replenish precision guided mm. munitions and now U UAVs uh, are limited because of the pressure that the rest of the world is putting on, on Mr. Putin. The president also discussed the two-state solution, but there is some frustration on the part of the Palestinians that the U.S. president doesn't have anything to offer them. No clear timeline for the reopening of the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem, the de facto U.S. mission, of course, to the Palestinians there. No effort to reverse laws defining the PLO as a terrorist group. No support to release tax revenues withheld by Israel. Is it fair to describe the inclusion of Mahmoud Abbas on the U.S. president's agenda as anything more than a courtesy call, as one commentator has described it. 
No, we would not say that at all. We certainly would not say that as a, a fair characterization. The president's looking forward uh, to his uh, discussion, his meeting with, with uh, President Abbas, um, and to making clear uh, to the president that the United States still stands firmly in favor of a two-state solution. We think that that's uh, the best path forward here. Uh, a two-state solution is still possible, but uh, the president also has said both sides have to want it as well. Um, uh, you know, so the United States will continue to reaffirm our commitment to that, uh, but we uh, obviously uh, would like to see both sides take steps uh, in that direction as well. We would, we would note, uh, within, and we're encouraged by, uh, the recent conversation between Prime Minister Lapid and, and President Abbas. We, we think that's, a, that's an important step forward, and we hope it leads to additional steps. Uh, but again, both sides have to be equally committed to this as well. John, why did the president choose not to meet the family of the American-Palestinian journalist Shireen Abdu Akhle? The president stays laser focused on this case. Um, he, is, uh, he has made it clear uh, throughout our administration and certainly uh, to leaders uh, here in the region uh, that uh, we want to see a full transparency with respect to uh, investigative results uh, and, and we want more information uh, about exactly what happened uh, to Ms. Uh, Abu Akla. Uh, and we have also stayed in touch with her family. Secretary Blinken uh, just had a, a recent conversation uh, with the family uh, in, in recent days uh, and we'll continue to do that. We'll continue to make sure uh, that we're staying in mm -hmm. touch with them uh, and that we're giving them as much information uh, in, as, in as close to real time uh, as we can. It's important to us uh, that there, there be transparency here with the investigative efforts, and it's obviously important to us uh, that there's proper accountability. Uh, we, we, we know that they want more answers. Quite frankly, we share that concern. We want more answers, and the president is going to stay focused on this. When asked about his potential meeting with the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the president framed his visit to Saudi Arabia as part of a wider regional plan, not simply a bilateral visit, which to a certain extent is fair enough. How concerned, though, are you about how this visit is playing back in the US? And when the White House announced recent COVID measures that will limit uh, the president shaking hands on this visit, is that simply a way to prevent a potential handshake with the crown prince? Uh, the president's looking forward to his trip uh, to Saudi Arabia here in the next day or so. There's an awful lot on the agenda, Becky. You talked about a bilateral discussion, and there will be, uh, with King Salman and his leadership team, which of course includes the Crown Prince. Uh, and then there'll be a full day on Saturday uh, in the context of the Gulf Cooperation Council plus three. And my goodness, between those two uh, sets of meetings, there's an awful lot of ground to cover. The president's looking forward to, to having a discussion here with nine leaders uh, in the region, nine state leaders leaders uh, on things as, as diverse as counterterrorism, the threat of Iran, which you and I have just been talking about, the, the continued ceasefire in Yemen and, and seeing that that, that that gets continued and that we've had the longest now period of peace in Yemen that we've had in seven years. So literally thousands of Yemeni lives have probably been saved by this by the by the stoppage uh, of, of the conflict there. And there's a there's a robust agenda. Uh, the president uh, will greet these leaders, all of them, in the same way that he that he's been greeting leaders around the world. Um, and and he's looking forward to a robust agenda. And his focus is not on the greetings themselves. His focus is on the actual mm. agenda and the, uh, and the topics that have to be furthered and discussed uh, in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and he'll find a region which is really sort of on the move as far as build back 
better together. We are seeing a real de-escalation of tensions by many of these regional sort of uh, heavyweights here and a sort of coming together uh, of regional alliances and ties, not just on the economic side, but on the security side as well for the bettering, uh, they say, of this region. So quite a different region from that which the president will have uh, travelled through in the uh, in the recent past. John, it's good to have you. Thank you. John Kirby joining me from Jerusalem, the first leg. Thank you of uh, Joe Biden's trip. Um, Coming up, Julia takes a look at the tension between a major airline and one of the world's busiest airports. That's an incredibly important story. Find out why up next. Welcome back to First Move. A weaker start to the Wall Street trading day, as expected. All the U.S. majors down by well over 1%, approaching 2%, as you can see there, for the Dow is yet another U.S. inflationary data point. This time, the producer price index comes in red hot. Today's numbers suggest that businesses, as well as consumers, are facing growing pricing pressures, further complicating the Fed's rate hike path. A shaky start, too, to U.S. earnings season. It's all tied. J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley lower in early trade after both of the Wall Street banking giants missed on earnings and revenues. JP Morgan taking steps to address the uncertain economic picture, including suspending share buybacks. A weaker deal making environment impacting the bottom line at Morgan Stanley. Just sheer uncertainty and volatility. Rahel Solomon joins us now. And into that mix, a weakening growth outlook, Rahel. We're starting to think the unthinkable, and that is that the Federal Reserve might have to hike a full percentage point at the next meeting and then three quarters at the one after. That's a lot of work being done in terms of tightening. Yeah, what seemed unthinkable about a week ago is starting to look a lot more likely. And this, of course, after a fresh set of bad data this morning, as you already pointed out, Julia, producer price index, that report coming in at 11.3% year over year for producer prices for factory level inflation at 1.1% over the last month. So uh, still red hot numbers there. And of course, that is on the heels of yesterday's much hotter than expected consumer price inflation report. So this is problematic to say the least for the Federal Reserve. And to your point, Julia, just a week ago, we were talking about half a percent to three quarters of a percent for the Fed's meeting in two weeks. Now, all of a sudden, we're questioning, might we see a full percentage point? When asked about this yesterday, Atlanta Fed President Rafael Basic said, everything is in play. Julia? Yes. Yikes, is my response to that. Rahel Solomon, thank you. For that update there. And all this tied to our next story as well. And uh, we're calling it Emmageddon. The UAE's Emirates airline rejecting a request by Heathrow Airport to cut flights, calling it, quote, unreasonable and unacceptable. Heathrow has asked airlines to stop selling any more tickets for this summer as it struggles to cope with high demand. Anna Stewart joins us on this story. Anna, we said the airlines would be unhappy. Furious, I think is a more appropriate word where Emirates is concerned. Incompetent, their word, not mine. And uh, We're not cutting capacity. The end. This was quite striking. It really was. This is the most stinging rebuke I think I've ever seen in a corporate statement ever, um, calling Heathrow Airport cavalier, saying they have no regard for their customers, uh, their airlines, and also, of course, for the consumer. And it was hard, actually, to lift out a paragraph from it. But here's one little bit where it says, London Heathrow Airport chose not to act, not to plan, not to invest now faced with an Airmageddon, their words, situation due to their incompetence and non-action, 
They are pushing the entire burden of costs and a scramble to sort out the mess to airlines and travellers. Now, we'd already heard from Willie Walsh, the head of IATA, the Global Airlines Association, earlier in the week. He accused Heathrow Airport of trying to maximise profits at the expense of both airlines and passengers. Lufthansa responded straight after the announcement about the capacity cap. They said they'd already cut a lot of flights from Heathrow and many other destinations, i.e. a more diplomatic way of saying what ultimately Emirates has said, which is they are not cutting any more flights. Now, Heathrow said on Tuesday that they were just requesting airlines do this capacity cap. They weren't going to enforce it. But today from Emirates, they say the airport has threatened legal action. We're still waiting for a response from Heathrow on that. So a lot of confusion as well. I can tell you many airlines clearly are not uh, obeying the rule or the uh, request, if it is a request from Heathrow Airport, to stop selling tickets. Because I can tell you I've just been booked onto a flight from Heathrow traveling to Dubai at the end of July, if, of course, that flight takes off, if it takes off on time, and if, of course, my bag gets there. Those are all questions I do not know the answer to. Yeah, and if it's not cancelled, I guess, is the other, the other <laughs> challenge here. Speaking of lost bags, I mean, airlines around the world are all having um, capacity issues, let's be clear. So we're not just seeing this in Heathrow. There are other issues. But Delta taking some uh, unique measures to retrieve lost bags themselves as a result of uh, the Heathrow chaos. This was an extraordinary uh, solution, they said, a creative solution. Just look at all those bags you're seeing on the screen stacked up at Heathrow Airport. Delta decided as they had to cancel a scheduled flight from Heathrow to the United States as a result of the capacity cap this week, they took the opportunity and the slot available for them to take a big plane and put 1,000 bags on it. Bags that uh, had been stuck at Heathrow Airport and they've taken it back to the U.S. and on to their customers. Absolutely extraordinary as a solution, isn't it? But also it made me wonder, this is just one airline, Delta. This is just the customers whose bags are stuck who are currently in the US. How many bags are at Heathrow right now for all of the different airlines who fly to all of those different destinations? Julia? Yeah, too many to count or keep track of, it seems. Hmm. And Stuart, thank you for that. Okay, coming up after this, a day to remember for this little pup. And despite the uh, slight wardrobe malfunction there, all went well in the end. (laughs) We'll explain after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to First Moves. And finally, and we end the show today with a compact canine crescendo. You're witnessing the wedding of two senior dogs at the shelter in North Dakota. The staff thought it would help these bonded pit bulls find a new home together. Fran and Earl enjoyed flowers and a cake and sealed the deal with paw prints on a certificate. Of course, we never miss an opportunity here on First Move to get Romeo involved. He's ready in his favourite outfit. Yes, you can probably tell he hated it. We both wish Fran and Earl long and happy lives and hope they find that new home very soon. Yes, if you think I'm bonkers, you would be completely right. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson live from Jeddah continues after this. Stay with CNN. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 